thank you very much for coming along today, especially if you stayed awake all night watching the sunset. <laughs> I'd especially like to welcome any first-year students as well to exam schools. Uh, do try and enjoy this occasion because, as I understand it, uh, this is the least traumatic hour you'll ever have <laughs> in this room. The city of Waco in McLennan County, Texas, population circa 130,000, has several claims to fame, many of them death-related. In 1896, as part of a publicity stunt organised by the local railroad company, two steam locomotives were driven towards each other at full speed, killing and maiming spectators when the boilers of both trains exploded simultaneously. A family day out reduced to tragedy and carnage through unforeseen circumstances. In May 1953, the 11th deadliest tornado in US history struck the downtown area of Waco, killing 114 people. And in 1978, the bones of 20-some mammoths one camel and a large cat began to emerge from the mud at the confluence point of two nearby rivers, though experts are still unable to explain why so many skeletons should have come to rest in one location. In 1993, the much-publicised siege of the Branch Davidian compound culminated in a shootout and fire that killed 74 people, including leader David Koresh. And in May 2015, nine people were killed when rival motorcycle gangs, including the Cossacks and the Bandidos, explored a difference of opinion in the car park of the Twin Peaks restaurant and sports bar. This most recent slaughter took place just a short stroll from the Armstrong Browning Library, home to the largest collection of Browning material in the world, strong box of Browning and Barrett Browning memorabilia, and shrine to Browning's memory, both in architecture and atmosphere. My notes from a visit there, as far as I'm able to decipher them, record close encounters with Robert's ink pot, his signature ring, a wisp of his hair, dried laurel leaves from his funeral wreath, Elizabeth's mechanical pencil, her diminutive mittens, and her gold-edged fan. It wouldn't be difficult to make ironic capital from the apparent incongruousness of the juxtaposition. How the author of Oh to be in England now that April's there once voted the UK's 46th all-time favourite poem, came to be so heavily curated and collected in the recreated Victorian hush of a mausoleum come museum under the big Texan sky. But I'd signed up for the tour of the library that day in a genuine attempt to engage with a poet I've never really connected with, bar a few of the dramatic monologues. And where better to do this than at that lavish portal to his corpus, rather than at the closed slab of Itali Italian marble and porphyry 
on the floor of Westminster Abbey, under which Browning decomposes, with Elizabeth's name chiselled at his feet. I suppose I was hoping for a virtual catabatic experience in Browning world, or at least an audience with the work, stemming from the notion that in one of its ancient and original guises, poetry attempts some form of dialogue with the expired. It is easy to descend into Avernus. Death's dark door stands open day and night, but to retrace your steps and get back to upper air, that is the task, that is the undertaking. Only a few have prevailed, sons of gods whom Jupiter favoured, or heroes exalted to glory by their own worth. So says Virgil through the mouth of the Sibyl, as retold on this occasion by Seamus Heaney. And isn't there also, in those words of caution, a challenge of sorts, a challenge which the most esteemed and ambitious poets, heroic, exalted, glorious and worthy, have been obliged to take on, one related to the ancient and primal origins of poetry, dating back as far as Gilgamesh and Homer, then taken up by Dante, Milton, Blake, all the way up to Eliot and beyond. This is the obligation that views poetry as clairvoyance or necromancy, and garlands the poet with the triple-A laminate and lanyard granting audience with the departed, VIP access to the netherworld, and more importantly, permission to exit. In The Bishop Orders His Tomb at St. Praxed's Church, Browning's vain and ailing clergyman, dying by degrees, makes strong recommendations to his family about how and where he should be buried. Even in death, it seems, he anticipates experience in the world with the senses of the living. And then how shall I lie through centuries and hear the blessed mutter of the mass and see God made and eaten all day long and feel the steady candle flame and taste good, strong, thick, stupefying incense smoke. In Waco's Armstrong Browning Library, I'm sorry to report, I felt no such sentience emanating from the various relics. Not even when I turned a corner and came face to face with a life-size cardboard cutout of Elizabeth. <laughs> and perhaps with Browning, I'd chosen the wrong poet to summon from across the sticks. Witness his poem, Mr. Sludge the Medium, a satirical portrait of the American spiritualist Daniel Holm, Browning had participated in a seance at which Holm was the psychic croupier. And as well as seen through the quackery of the occasion, Browning appears to have recognised in the table magician cum con artist a grotesque version of the stereotypical poet, serving up sham necromances in melodramatic fashion or objected to a charlatan performing services which are the preserve of the poet-priest. Witness also Browning's attempt to speak from beyond the grave in the form of the 1889 phonograph recording of his famous poem, 
how they brought the good news from Aix to Ghent, making it the earliest recorded reading by any of the canonical poets. Even though the fizzing static lends the recording a spookiness worthy of poltergeist or stranger things, it is ultimately an inauspicious maiden electro Browning twice forgetting his lines and eventually throwing in the towel. A good ringtone, though. In the beginning was the word, and the word was Genesis, an entirely apposite title for the opening poem of Geoffrey Hill's first full-length collection. For the Unfallen was published in 1959, though in the notes and acknowledgments section of the early Penguin Collected, Hill attests that Genesis dates from 1952. A Genesis indeed then, and a creation piece appropriate to the ambition, seriousness and grandiose vision of the lifelong enterprise ahead, and from the hand of a 20-year-old, hardly lacking in confidence or hobbled by modesty. Let's say that Hill started as he meant to go on. Against the burly air I strode, crying the miracles of God, declares the speaker at the outset. So not God himself, but not far removed. Some kind of land agent or project manager commissioned to superintend phase one of the grand scheme of things, sometimes conducting or choreographing the elemental material at his disposal, sometimes renouncing and even recoiling from a nature unsparingly red in tooth and claw, and eventually reflecting on the paradox of existence, namely the gift of blood by which we are born and by which we die. And let's acknowledge that Hill started as he meant to go on in style as well as subject. I don't want it to be a sort of simpering drizzle, he once said, inviting the rest of us to look down at the simpering drizzle of our own efforts, wet, smeary poems in soggy, sentimental collections. Hence Hill wrestling with the dense fluctuations of the materia out from which I shall be lucky to twitch creative fire. Hence Hill stating, I really do want there to be some sense of order battling anarchy within the very structure of a poem. Order battling anarchy. Hill striding into the force field, as he referred to it, i.e. measuring out the four iambic feet of against the burly air I strode, within the hefty thermals and irregular currents and swirling weather fronts of contemporary poetry that buffet him into beginning his second line with a reverse foot before he regains his balance and falls back into step. Crying, he says, both with tears running down his cheeks and with a handbell to accompany his oh yay, oh yay proclamation. And thus the whole enterprise is hatched from that one dizygotic double-yoked couplet with the long O of Strode finding its half-rhyme sibling in the abrupt full-stopping O of God. The two open-mouth vowels 
positioned directly beneath each other on the page. In Hill's period of late ripeness, or second wind, the serotonin years, we might call them, the compulsion towards order gives way in some collections to a more relaxed patterning and playful design, but with no let-up in the moment-to-moment, syllable-by-syllable inspection of subject and language. Serotonin is new transubstantiation, or as he comments in The Triumph of Love, on the conversion or reconversion of brain chemicals, the taking up of serotonin, I must confess to receiving the latest elements, Virginia Bella, as a signal mystery, mercy of these latter days. There are, I openly admit, in some of his mature writings, whole passages and whole pages and one or two whole books that have passed me by, or have struck me as surreal karaoke versions of Hill singing his own national anthem, and also a tendency towards lines that read like clues from the Times cryptic crossword. Near admirers cope with our begging Nescafe and rides. (laughs) Four across, six letters. (laughs) To some, even to Hill on occasions, the gallbladder rather than the heart was the wellspring of certain outpourings, making me pause to wonder, parenthetically, selfishly, what Geoffrey Hill would have thought of my own work. Not much, I imagine, given the scorn he directed from this platform at others like me and at others I like. He kept files, I was once informed, and once when my name came up in conversation with my informer, he said, yes, I've got a file on him. (laughs) But if I was a fool in his eyes, then I was one he suffered patiently on the few occasions I met him, by which time he was a white-bearded character from the Old Testament. And if I do lie trounced and dismantled somewhere within his archive in the vaults of Leeds University Special Collections, I know it will be with impeccable diction and immaculate grammar. But if Hill could turn the pen against those readers and reviewers unequal to his intelligence and unappreciative of his humour, and against those who spoke from off-the-peg political positions as he saw them, and against those who failed to reveal language for its gravity and solemnity, then he could just as quickly point the sharpened quill at himself. Again, from the triumph of love, I am too much moved by hate, sounds candid, even if he undermines the admission through comic hyperbole by adding greed, self-pity, sick scrupulosity, frequent fetal regression and a twisted libido to the list of crimes, or better out than in as the mitigating plea. In that same volume, an editor's voice makes frequent intrusions on the text as if rebuking Hill for his obscurity. And anyone who saw him read will have witnessed his occasional habit of self-heckling, throwing out breadcrumbs 
so as to induce the more gullible or attention-hungry aspect of his ego to leap up and take the bait. Not unlike the deranged interplay between puppet and puppeteer in the underrated 1978 Anthony Hopkins film, Magic. That editorial voice, by the way, is itself edited out in later printings. A full survey of Hill's work would have to take into account all his many revisions and retractions, but quite frankly, I don't have the life expectancy, which for a probation officer retiring in 1995 was put at 69 years, though admittedly I did retire age 32. <laughs> in some descriptions of Hill's poetry, we get the impression of a man who devoted himself to the art. Devoted, with its undertones of spiritual obligation and slavish adherence. A devotion that takes the practitioner beyond mere occupation, preoccupation or duty towards vocation, faith and love, towards a calling. In fact, I'd go further and suggest a form of martyrdom, though Hill himself waved away that suggestion in an interview published in the spring 2000 issue of the Paris Review. Interviewer, do you see yourself as a kind of martyr figure in terms of your being a poet and in the context of what we said about people not understanding issues of difficulty or possibilities for intelligence? Hill, no. Absolutely not. And yet, in his def definition of martyrdom that would follow, and in his repeated use of that term in his work and his conversation, and in balancing the great tome of broken hierarchies in my hands all this summer, and in the light of his recent passing, the word has a persuasive ring to it. I am doing great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? Hill has Nehemiah say on his behalf, epigraphically in capital letters in The Triumph of Love. But to return to the beginning, where I started from and where I meant to go on from, For the Unfallen is a partly ironic title for a collection stuffed from front to back with the fallen a veritable graveyard of a volume, not least of the drowned and incinerated. I began at one point to count the bodies, using what Hill himself referred to from this lectern as the wet finger method, but lost track among the multitudes. When towards the end of the collection, in part four of, of Commerce and Society, Hill offers with knowing banality the dead are my obsession this week. It's as if to elicit the response, no kidding, Jeff. It's also a book steeped in the smoke and silverware of religious and church ritual. From a poet whose philosophical or spiritual position at the time seems well represented by the communicant in the poem, The Bidden Guest. Approaching the altar rail, among the apparently excitable candles, Hill writes, And I believe in the spurred flame, those racing tongues, but cannot come out of my heart's unbroken room, 
nor feel the lips of fire among the cold light and the chilling song. It's beautifully put. For a poet who became practised in answering to the charge of being difficult, it's a surprising moment of lucidity, confession even, delivered with understated lyrical grace. And that transparency is evident again in the elegy in memory of Jane Fraser, with its clarity of setting and a sequence of events delivered with a kind of folk song lightness, at least across the first two quatrains. On reflection, Hill came to dislike the poem very much, offering a repaired version in an addendum to King Log as a necessary penitential exercise. Though if the deletion of four commas and the introduction of blanket italics passes for penitence, then the sin could hardly have been of cardinal proportions. Elsewhere, he referred to the poem's coy last stanza, which happens to be the stanza I want to draw attention to. It reads, She died before the world could stir. In March, the ice unloosed the brook and water ruffled the sun's hair. Dead cones upon the alder shook. The cones of the female catkins on the alders are described as lifeless, shaking like some kind of mute bell to taller passing. But at the same time, how can they not be symbols of regeneration and rebirth after the grip of winter? Because I can't help but conclude that Jane Fraser, whoever she was or wasn't, is about to be returned to us in the form of new growth delivered by the midwife of spring, a vital and unavoidable recrudescence not unlike those biological processes at work in Thomas Hardy's transformations. I meant only to write a couple of sentences of introduction to Geoffrey Hill as a run-up to his poem, September Song, something of an inadvertent Hill signature tune or an unintentional calling card by virtue of its regular appearance in anthologies of contemporary poetry and the poem by which his work is often represented, no matter how unrepresentative it would become. September Song, born 19632, deported 24942. Undesirable you may have been, untouchable you were not, not forgotten or passed over at the proper time. As estimated, you died. Things marched sufficient to that end. Just so much cyclone and leather, patented terror, so many routine cries. I have made an elegy for myself, it is true. September fattens on the vines, roses flake from the wall, the smoke of harmless fires drift to my eyes. This is plenty. This is more than enough. In that same Paris Review interview mentioned previously, Hill acknowledged that the author is perfectly aware of the grotesque difference between his own resentments and the plight of millions, between the claims that he makes for himself 
and the several holocausts of his age. He was actually responding to reviews of the triumph of love, but his awareness presumably holds true for September Song as well, in its intentionally queasy slippage between the historical and the personal, mirroring in a distorted, disfiguring Hall of Mirrors fashion, the slippage between genocide and harvest time. Zyklon B was originally developed as a pesticide. It's worth noting, as many have, that the birth date of the anonymous dedicatee of the poem is one day after Hill's own birthday. So we're already alerted to the biographical resonance in the poem. Postponed for two stanzas, as Hill lays down several chilling observations expressed in terms of faux apathy and detachment. The self re-emerges as the central tercet in a somewhat lopsided sonnet, an axel between the then of stanzas one and two and the now of stanzas four and five. The brackets suggest an aside, but the effect, as Hill surely appreciates, is more of a stage whisper, in part a terrible admission of inappropriateness and intrusion, and in part an assertion of blunt honesty. At worst, those three lines are contemptible. At best, they mesmerise, even causing us to rethink the opening of the poem as an autobiographical obituary. A double take the reader is forced to repeat at the end of the poem with a last line that wobbles between tearful sorrow for the historical atrocity and a breathtaking admission of literary satisfaction. And framed within the terms of this lecture, I read that death in life, life in death interchanging of roles as a form of necromancy in the same way that I read the bidden guest mentioned earlier as an essentially Tiresian Nakia, its speaker as the blind prophet or seer, called forth from among the dead of his own conjuring, drawn to the blood of Holy Communion. And so with that same chalice, I raise a toast to Sir Geoffrey Hill. Bromsgrove's best kept secret according to the Droitwich Spa advertiser. <laughs> Houseman's complicated younger sibling, unceasing poet, hour by hour the iron nib hardly pausing at the well, cupbearer to the king, solitary rebuilder of the walls of Jerusalem, former student at Keeble College and former Oxford professor of poetry, born 18.6.32, departed 36.16. Also of this parish, by way of Boston, Lincolnshire, poet Elizabeth Jennings. If Browning is remembered by virtue of statuary, stained glass, a proper grave in Poet's Corner and a handful of poems, Jennings could claim a more utilitarian commemoration in the form of Elizabeth Jennings Way, a street in North Oxford. I haven't ventured there myself, but preliminary reconnaissance on Google Earth, including sponsored redirection to the Zoopla website, 
suggests a recently developed residential area of high-end flats and townhouses whose shaped orderliness might well have been Elizabeth Jennings's way in terms of a fondness for form and structure, but whose current prices would presumably have excluded her. As an undercover poet masquerading as a probation officer in Greater Manchester in the early 90s, I made frequent home visits to Longfellow Crescent, Tennyson Street, Wordsworth, Keats, Shelley and, yes, Browning Road, all christened out of a sense of poetic optimism and hope, I'm sure, but quickly incompatible with the ensuing reality. Although in the opiate-based explosion of the era, at least nearby Coleridge Road lived up to some of its promise. <laughs> Jennings was a committed Catholic, and despite claiming to have only occasionally written specifically religious poems, just the index of her 1,000-plus page posthumously published collected poems reads like a biblical concordance. Given my prurient interest today in what kind of world awaits us through the parted curtains, I want to focus on just three. Lazarus from 1961's Song for a Birth or a Death. Lazarus from 1996's In the Meantime and A View of Lazarus from 1998's Praises. If we take the standard Lazarus commentary as John 11, 1 to 45, we'll remember how Christ ignores warnings of foul odours and proceeds to call Lazarus of Bethany four days dead out of his tomb. Among those who witness the miracle are Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, an unspecified number of unnamed disciples and a group of onlookers, randomers in today's parlance. Some will become members of the flock, others will go bleating to the Pharisees. Jennings locates herself somewhere within that crowd and in the first of these poems, possibly the best of the three, presents the following testimony. It was the amazing white. It was the way he simply refused to answer our questions. It was the cold, pale glance of death upon him, the smell of death that truly declared his rising to us. It was no chance happening, as a man may fill a silence between two heartbeats, seem to be dead, and then astonishes with the closeness of his presence. This man was dead. I say it again and again. All of our sweating bodies moved towards him, and our minds moved too, hungry for finished faith. He would not enter our world at once with words that we might be tempted to twist or argue with, cold like a white root pressed in the bowels of the earth he looked, but also vulnerable, like birth. I've always read that indentation of the first line as an intake of breath preceding the amazing white, at variance with the biblical account, which describes his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his feet. Though it could be Jennings's response to the pale nakedness revealed once Jesus has commanded, take off the grave clothes and let him go. But the real force of the poem 
derives from that repeated assertion in the end-stopped last line of the octave. This man was dead, I say it again and again, insists Jennings, authenticating the voice through the first and only acknowledgement of herself as the poem's speaker, and exaggerating the contrast with that spellbound image of birth in the final line. In another version of the myth, if I can categorise it as such, from another source, Lazarus was so traumatised by his brief residency in the netherworld that for his remaining 30 years among the living, he never once smiled. Here too, he remains mute and bewildered, unavailable for interview or interrogation. The poem offers an interesting contrast with Sylvia Plath's monologued inhabitation of the same character, written at roughly the same time. In Lazarus.2, let's call it, the resuscitated protagonist is addressed in the more intimate second person, as if Jennings has moved closer to her subject, and all interested parties have become they, as she wonders if it was bafflement or joy that kept mourners and rubberneckers from asking questions about the afterlife. She ends, it seems more likely that you could not say what after death can yield and mean and show. That there were no words for that place or time when human spirits know this whole vast what. There was no metaphor. Even for Jennings, whose poems were conduits between body and soul, one of poetry's most fundamental techniques is finally insufficient to the task. Metaphor simulates the human instinct to understand and interpret the world through constant acts of comparison, and in its carrying across, perhaps even simulates neurotransmission processes and the bridging of the synaptic cleft. But the afterlife is beyond even poetic description because it is like nothing else. By its third iteration, Jennings has stepped back into the crowd again, trying to look beyond the risen man's shoulder and steal a glimpse of the glimmering kingdom he has left. This time she ends. Lazarus now opens his eyes and it's at us he stares, as if we were all strangers. Then it's odd, but we feel we should stop talking. Lazarus is, yes, no doubt of it, now shedding tears and whispering quietly, God, oh no, dear God. Jennings' editor, Michael Schmidt, has talked of poems being submitted by the carrier bagful. So it's hard to know exactly when the prior of Lazarus pieces were actually composed. But if the 37 years that separates their publication is a fair indication of their vintage, then what are we to make of Jennings's changing understanding of the afterlife as she gets older? In particular, how are we to interpret God, oh no, dear God? Construe consolation and affirmation from it as you may, but to me, it reads more like the response of a detective constable emerging from some unspeakable crime scene into a battery of microphones and cameras, eyes closed, hand over mouth. 
At the same time, it's worth remembering that for all their paranormal prestige, the dead are not always reliable witnesses or accurate forecasters. In book 10 of Dante's Inferno, as the poet tours the circle of the heretics, Cavalcante de Cavalcanti is shocked to learn that his son Guido has passed away, a situation Prue Shaw describes as a kind of reverse dementia, as cruel as its real life medical condition, where the ability to prophesize the future is reduced the closer that future comes to the present. Long-term vision intact, but short-term oracular powers virtually non-existent. The one time I met Elizabeth Jennings was at Lumbank, the Hepton Stall farmhouse once owned by Ted Hughes, but now a residential writing centre run by the Arvon Foundation. By the 1990s, Jennings had developed a reputation for being absent-minded, unreliable and eccentric. And I was surprised when she actually walked in through the door of that remote building on the side of a dark West Yorkshire Valley. But I wanted to remember out loud and here in this hall, how she charmed and delighted a dozen or so aloof and cynical school students, so that by the end of the evening, they were sitting in a circle at her feet or perched on the arm of a chair as she recited and elucidated her much studied poem, The Diamond Cutter. And I pause again here, parenthetically, selfishly, to wonder what Elizabeth Jennings would have made of my own work. A pause occasioned by a sentence in Emma Mason's afterward to the collected poems, which reads, this preoccupation with writers willing to innovate poetically and theologically is apparent in her unpublished essays in which she explores the work of, amongst others, Geoffrey Hill and Simon Armitage. Always fascinating to find out from others just what it is you've been up to. I experienced something similar this summer in the form of my daughter's GCSE English revision notes, as she prepared to sit an exam which required the dissection and analysis of her father's poems. <laughs> I actually think she got a bit of a kick out of it, even if it made her English teacher a tad nervous, <laughs> and made me a little nervous as well. Though I'm assuming she didn't go as far out on a limb as another exam student, who in a response to a poem of mine about a man walking his canine companion wrote, towing a dog on a rope could suggest he is alone and isolated and his erectile dysfunction is due possibly to being unable to please a partner, which is possibly why his only companion is a dog. <laughs> this could also imply he had his genitals removed in an accident. Also of this parish, John Stallworthy, best known for his critical and biographical writing, I think it's fair to say, especially that on Wilfred Owen, though it's his poetry I want to recall today. Many of Stallworthy's poems arise from his proxy literary experiences in the hellish quagmire of the trenches. 
In the underworld in the 20th century poetry, Michael Thurston focuses on Stallworthy's poem, War Poet, which opens in the church of St. James the Great in nearby South Lee, with its extraordinary depiction of the doom, something of a resurrection itself, having been buried under layers of paint for 400 years. The speaker in the piece is suffering from a form of survivor guilt, following a journey to hell and back, in which comrades are lost and a lover becomes separated through a version of the Orphean tragedy. The poem is unapologetically Dantean in its use of the descent motive, and the speaker experiences a Lazarus-like stupefaction following his emergence into the realm of the living. But I wanted to suggest another poem from a decade earlier, this amputee sonnet around, as a different example of resurrection in Stallworthy's work. Lead ore lifted from a Cornish mine, married in a furnace to Cornish tin, their one flesh pewter, a barnacled plate salvaged from the ribs of a ship of the line, in Cape Town market sold for a florin, bartered for biltong in the free state, a farmer's wedding present for his bride to shine, until, with the wagon team taken, the farm in flames, she cried as he melted it down, tilting its gleam to the lips of his bullet mould, one of whose slugs would open a seam in a Cornish miner's sun. The endless cycle of war and peace and the recycling of its metals, plough into sword, sword into plough, etc., are staples of storytelling and a familiar poetic device. But the pun of this, title, of this poem's title extends further than the circularity of its argument, not least through its subtext of reincarnation. We find this not just in the metaphorical body parts, the flesh pewter, in the ribs of a ship, in the lips of his bullet mould, but more subtly in the thematic transmogrifications that are taking place. So the lead ore that becomes married to the tin also serves as a wedding present before its final incarnation as an instrument of fatality. And when the last line takes us back to the first, we remember that the lead itself was not so much born as exhumed, lifted, Stallworthy says, reverentially, from the underworld setting of a mine. Isn't there also a passing reference to the Eucharist when the elemental metal, metal is bartered for biltong? The parity of the transaction physically achieved through the balancing act of the alliteration, bartered for biltong, biltong being a sort of jerky or dried meat, flesh made flesh once eaten and digested. In that respect, the poem reminds me of the metaphorical equivalence between germination and resurrection that George Mackay Brown navigates in From Stone to Thorn. To drudge in furrows till you drop is to be born out of the mild mothering hill and the chaste burn. God begun, the barley rack by man is born. And reminds me also of David Jones's belief 
that many artistic impulses, at least as far as Roman Catholics are concerned, are sacramental at heart and have their origins in the anamnesis of the Last Supper. Jones is very much the poet's poet, that terrifying compliment which usually translates as overlooked or neglected. Though the anniversary of the psalm has given rise to a wider consideration of his work, just as the centenary of World War I has turned up the heat and brightness on all the so-called war poets. In the context of catabatic descents, Wilfred Owen's strange meeting is the usual standard bearer. Owen coming face to face with one of his own victims in a sort of no man's land between life and death, a hinterland created via the haze and smudge of para-rhyme or near-rhyme or off-rhyme or close-rhyme or slant-rhyme or half-rhyme or whatever it's called this week. See also Robert Graves' Escape, a poetic account of the 24 hours Graves spent halfway down the road to Lethay while laid on a stretcher alongside other casualties during which a letter of condolence was dispatched to his mother, informing her of her son's death. In the prose version of the story, as recounted in Goodbye to All That, the dialogue that takes place between Graves and the doctor charged with treating and feeding him is the most moving passage of the whole book. Graves promising an entire orchard in return for two unripe green gauges as well as the shell injuries, one that passed through his groin and the other through his chest, Graves reports a smaller wound over his eye made by a marble chip, possibly from one of the Bazanton Cemetery headstones, a notion he can't resist enlarging on in the 1957 reprint in which he states, later, I had it cut out but a smaller piece has since risen to the surface under my right eyebrow, where I keep it for a souvenir. Risen to the surface. David Jones also survived the carnage of Mamet's Wood and the pandemonium of the war. And after a period of consideration and composition, delivered a modernist prose poem that chronicled the experience of one private John Ball from his embarkation at Southampton docks through to the front line and beyond. If, in parenthesis, becomes more fragmentary and less coherent as it progresses, it also becomes more lyrical and pitiful, culminating in the final passages of part seven. In the aftermath of battle, Ball appears to have survived, going blindly on all paws with his rifle slung around his neck, part broken limb, part wooden cross, part spouse, part albatross, until he stumbles among his dead comrades. By the unreal drifting light of flares, the queen of the woods enters the field, bestowing on the fallen bright boughs of various flowering, making her supernatural ward round through some liminal dreamlike margin. This is the poem as threshold occurrence, the poem as Nekir, situated on the ill-defined event horizon from beyond which only the mythical and immortal may return, 
but from whose borders we're offered a glimpse of the eternal and the everlasting. She speaks to them according to precedence. She knows what's due to this elect society. She can choose 12 gentlemen. She knows who is most Lord between the high trees and on the open down. Some she gives white berries, some she gives brown. Emile has a curious crown. It's made of golden saxifrage. Fatty wears sweet briar. He will reign with her for a thousand years. For Balder, she reaches high to fetch his. Ulrich smiles for his myrtle wand. In 2015, invited to respond to a retrospective Henry Moore exhibition at the Yorkshire Sculpture Park, I walked into a gallery where a blown up version of this image covered a wall about 20 feet square. The photograph was taken by war photographer Lee Miller, the same Lee Miller who posed for a photograph in Hitler's bathtub, though only after removing her boots, still clogged with the mud of Dachau. In the early 40s, Henry Moore had been commissioned to record experiences in the London Underground during the Blitz, when stations were being used as air raid shelters. And the iconography of this image seemed, when I first encountered it, immediately apparent to me. To my pictorial reading, here is the Odyssey, Book 11. The drowsy souls of the dead gathering on the brink, Moore dressed as if from another dimension, leaning on a wall that divides light from dark, the black tunnel to the right leading to the deep and distant netherworlds of Hammersmith and Hounslow. That interpretation might be an imposition if Moore hadn't been so compulsively engaged with the Odyssean narrative and descents generally. An interest allied to his South Yorkshire background and his artistic responses to the coal pits and collieries of his upbringing. Take, for example, this illustration made for Edward Sackville West's radio melodrama, The Rescue, the first ever BBC retelling of the Odyssey. And this representation of Odysseus's arrival back on his island kingdom of Ithaca. Moore's images executed in the same style as his drawings of the tube stations during aerial bombardment. The American photographer Walker Evans was another visual artist who seized on the mournful implications of an underground transportation system, snapping images of the New York City subway in the 30s and early 40s with a camera hidden inside his coat. James Agee commenting on Evans's through the buttonhole photographs in his introduction to many are called compared the millions of souls in daily subterranean commute to war deaths, both in number and attitude. Poets too have drawn similar inferences while standing in the stations of the metro or rattling through the tube, and that Seamus Heaney made the connection should come as no particular surprise. From the bog body poems of wintering out and north, to the descent and re-emergence of Station Island, to the below-ground setting of District and Circle, across a lifetime's preoccupation with Virgil and the posthumous publication 
of his Aeneid Book 6 and via many more forays into the substrata, we might come to believe that Heaney was not only a regular commuter on the line between this world and the next, but something of a season ticket holder. In his poem, The Underground, describing a honeymoon trip to London in 1965, Heaney recalls running behind his new wife through the tiled tube tunnels around the London museums and the Albert Hall, then returning after some unspecified period of time to collect the buttons that had sprung from her coat. As Station Island's opening gambit, I've always thought of the poem as a taster, advertising the themes of the collection as a whole as they deepen and widen through the book. Though for all its apparent straightforwardness, I confess to never properly catching Heaney's drift. I think because of the competing mythological sources the underground works through in developing its plot points, establishing its argument, and securing metaphorical field position. The underground. There we were in the vaulted tunnel running, you in your going away coat speeding ahead and me, me then like a fleet god gaining upon you before you turned to a reed or some new white flower japped with crimson as the coat flapped wild and button after button sprang off and fell in a trail between the underground and the Albert Hall. Honeymooning, moonlighting, late for the proms, our echoes die in that corridor, and now I come as Hansel came on the moonlit stones, retracing the path back, lifting the buttons to end up in a drafty lamplit station after the trains have gone, the wet track bared and tensed as I am, all attention for your step following, and damned if I look back. To begin with, we have Heaney as lustful Pan in pursuit of the nymph Syrinx, followed by Heaney as Hansel of Hansel and Gretel fame, Hansel's intentionally dropped pebbles now recast as the accidentally lost buttons. In the Brothers Grimm version, these tokens return the abandoned siblings out of the dark wood towards the safety of home, though here they appear to lead the poet to a foreign and inhospitable place. And finally, we meet Heaney as Orpheus walking ahead of his wife Eurydice, the follower having become the followed. The speaker's resolve not to make that backward glance is a statement of artistic determination and an imperative against nostalgia. And being entirely Orphean, the reference is therefore subterranean, although to my literal thinking, Lamplight and wet tracks suggest an above-ground location, South Kensington Tube perhaps, with platforms open to the sky. Also, the speaker's refusal to turn around seems to be favouring the allegorical potential of the situation over the quotidian realities of the London underground post-midnight, where any new husband of the gallant mid-sixties would surely be on about to keep a protective eye on his new bride. Perhaps Heaney is alone in that final couplet and belated and counselling himself, counseling himself 
against the temptations of memory. A situation that runs contrary to the fable, whose dramatic satisfaction depends very much on Eurydice's unseen presence. In a lot of cases, I wouldn't expend too many thought calories attempting to arrange the jigsaw pieces of a poem into a complete composite picture. With Geoffrey Hill's work, for example, where complexities of thinking are expressed as complexities of text. But Heaney is a situationist poet, small s, of the this happened and it means such and such school. His poems nearly always offer a user-friendly operating interface, even when they reach towards the numinous and the mystical. As with section eight of Lightnings, in some ways, a, a geometrical inverse of the underground, where solid narrative groundwork and firm poetic footings allow the ethereal crewman drowning on dry land to be released out of the marvellous as he had known it. In an introduction to a filmed reading of the underground on his 70th birthday, Heaney lets on that in the days of going away outfits, his new wife had worn a white coat, but in the public bar of the museum tavern had dropped a complimentary slice of pickled beetroot on it, thus explaining the japped with crimson reference as an allusion to Eurydice's wound after being bitten by the snake. Personally, I would have liked the beetroot in the text. Since the introduction of beetroot, sliced, pickled or otherwise, can never fail to improve a poem. <laughs> I'm not fishing for support on this point. I'm taking your agreement as given. In the small report of my mother and father's wedding in the Huddersfield Examiner, the final sentence reads, for going away, the bride wore grapefruit. <laughs> A 10 syllable sentence crying out to become the concluding line of an epithalmic sonnet. If only Armitage Jr. could come up with 13 more lines worthy of its company. And on Heaney's The Underground, one further thought. Bob Dylan played the Albert Hall during his 1965 tour, footage of which was included in the rockumentary film, Don't Look Back. End of thought. <laughs> in a lecture that seems to have developed into a series of obituaries, I wanted to finish by paying respects to the American poet James Tate as a way of honouring an alliance and acknowledging a debt of influence. In the upsetting and unsettling title poem of his first book, The Lost Pilot, Tate addresses his father, the co-pilot of a World War II bomber plane lost in action when the poet was five months old. Tate seeks to cajole you to come back for an evening down from your compulsive orbiting and questions if it was mistake or misfortune that placed you in that world and me in this or placed these worlds in us. The experimentalism and near-surrealism of Tate's middle period gave way eventually to a laconic, absurdist style of storytelling 
layers of obfuscatory material wrapped around a small kernel of poignant, often lonely truth. Tate died in 2015 after the reoccurrence of a mouth cancer, a crueler condition for a poet of his talkative and loquacious predispositions I cannot conceive. But apparently he left a finished poem in the typewriter and passed away with his newly published book in his hands. One day, I believe medical science will furnish us with a cure for that very serious condition we call death, or provide an inoculation against it, at which point the nature of the afterlife will cease to be a topic for poetic speculation, and the job of the poet medium, the interpreter, as Wallace Stevens mockingly puts it in, of heaven considered as a tomb, will become yet another obsolete occupation, like that of the cabinet maker for the England football team's trophy collection. Until that time, we can either believe that dead means dead, as dead as Baldrubador in Stevens's The Worms at Heaven's Gate, being carried along in a chariot of maggots, or we can retrace the steps of Orpheus, Odysseus, Pollux, Heracles, Theseus, Persephone, Juno, Inanna, etc., and return to the upper world in the shape of our poems, should our poems have the vitality to outlast us and to go on living. Tate's poem, The Shroud of the Gnome, concludes, So I paid my bill and disappeared down an alley where I composed myself. Amid the piles of outcast citizenry and burning barrels of waste and rot, the plump rats darting freely, the havoc of blown newspapers, lay the little shroud of my lost friend, small and grey and threadbare, wind-worn by the ages of scurrying hither and thither, battered by the avalanches and private tornadoes of just being a gnome, but surely there were good times too. And now, rejuvenated by the wind, the shroud moves forward, hesitates, dances sideways, brushes my foot as if for a kiss, and flies upward, whistling a little-known ballad about the pitiful, raw etiquette of the underworld. Thank you very much.